Well, good morning. Good to see you all today. We're going to start a new sermon series today. Uh, and we're calling it Talk to Me. What does talking to God look like to you? Do you ever find that you don't know what to say to God or you don't know what God is saying to you? I have that problem all the time. We'll try to answer some of those questions about prayer in the next few weeks. Uh, this series of messages is going to be taught by Pastor David's deep bench preaching team, including myself and Brian Croyle and Jim Heddles and Tim Henson. And we're all going to be talking about various aspects of prayer and how we pray, why we pray, what prayer means, why it's important. Today we're going to focus, though, on what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that's often recited in worship services. We do it occasionally here. Some churches, they do it every single week, every single service. Um, and so I thought we'd start off by reading the traditional version of it just to kind of remind ourselves of what it says. I apologize for the, the screen. Um, we're going to fix that for next week. Sometimes the backgrounds play havoc with the text. So I think you probably know this, but if you don't, try to make the words out as best you can. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? And it's very simple, very straightforward. doesn't say an awful lot. Sometimes I think the, uh, the Elizabethan language that's in there, the thou's and the arts and so on, can be a little off-putting, especially for people from a younger generation. It was one of the things when I was growing up, I thought you had to learn how to pray to God using, you know, thou art this and thine and so on and so forth, you know. It seemed like that was the way everybody prayed in the days, you know, centuries ago when I was growing up. Um, we're going to be looking at a modern translation of this prayer today, and hopefully by the time we're finished, we'll have some new ideas about why this prayer is important, why it's been so significant in the Christian church. But first of all, what does the Bible say about prayer? What comes to mind when you think about what the Bible says to prayer, says about prayer? Well, there's a lot, actually, an awful lot. We're going to look at a couple uh, examples here from Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. John 9, 31. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but He is ready to hear those who will worship Him and do His will. Psalm 85, 8 says, I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for He speaks peace to His faithful people. And then there's a story in Matthew 17 where uh, during what we call the transfiguration, Peter proclaimed or exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Listen to him. Christianity is unique for a lot of reasons among the world's religions. Uh, we believe 
First of all, that God's defining characteristic is love, that God is love, we say. And he loves us enough to have paid the penalty for our sins in Christ. We also say that God actually lived on earth for a time in the person of Jesus Christ. And we say that God wants to have a relationship with you and with me. On top of that, we say that God talks. God listens. And we believe that God wants us to talk to him. God is not sitting silently way up on his throne, just sort of detached and observing everything. God is a conversationalist. God wants to hear what you have to say. The entire Bible is written around the presence, the premise that God has things to say to us. We call it God's Word because it's the inspired Word of God to help us understand who we are and what we are and where we're going and what life is all about and what God's priorities are and how to live life fully and with joy. But equally remarkable is that the Bible claims that God wants to hear from us. God is listening. God is paying attention right now, right now, to you and to me. He wants to hear what's on our minds. He wants to hear what's on our hearts, and He invites us to talk to Him. And He hopes that as we do that, it won't be a one-sided conversation, but we will listen to try to hear what He has to say. Now, some of us are better at talking than listening. I won't point to anybody. Um, but I have a friend who's one of those life-of-the-party people, you know. He's gregarious, he's interesting, he always has great stories, he makes people laugh, he's very opinionated, he can talk on a thousand subjects, and he can talk for hours and hours, it seems, without taking a breath. Loves to talk. And then there's his wife. His wife is just exactly the opposite. She's charming, but she's very quiet. And when they're in a group, she kind of fades into the background, and lets everyone else carry the conversation. And you never really know what she's thinking, but she's taking everything in. She's listening. And she often picks up on all sorts of things that her husband misses because she's a good listener. Some people are talkers. Some people are listeners. You may not know which one you are, but I think if you turn to the person sitting next to you, they'll probably clue you in. God listens, which means we need to be speaking to him. And God speaks, which means we need to be listening. Conversation with God we call prayer. That's all prayer is. It's conversation with God. But let's face it, prayer is kind of strange. It's a lot more strange than sitting on the back patio with your friends talking about sports. First, there's the whole invisible thing, right? We can't see this person we're talking to. God is invisible. And then we can't very easily hear him either. We can't very easily hear what he's saying. And that makes prayer pretty odd. And then secondly, we're talking to God. We're talking to the creator of heaven and earth, the inventor of the solar system, the designer of DNA, the chemist who figured out how to create life from inert atoms of oxygen, hydrogen, and carbon. And so... What can we possibly say to God that he would find very interesting? What can we possibly say to God that he doesn't already know? But you know that none of that seems to matter. None of it matters. He wants us to talk to him. He wants to have a conversational relationship with us. God says, talk to me. 
we're not sure how to do that or what we should be talking about. Well, the Bible is full of examples. Half of the Psalms, if you read through it at some point, are prayers by various Old Testament characters that have been preserved through history. And every well-known Bible story that you can think of, it seems that people are either praying to God or listening and hearing God's voice. The Lord's Prayer, or the Catholic tradition, it's called the Our Father, um, is Jesus' model for prayer. So we're going to look at it today. Today's passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus was speaking to a very large crowd of people, and he was outdoors on the side of a hill, which is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And most of what he says is there to kind of correct misunderstandings about God's priorities, about who God is. You can read along with me if you want. You can turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, or you can open up your smartphone and turn to mygrace.church, and then the Messages tab there has this as well, and it'll be up on the screen. You can squint and probably read it on the screen. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15 is where we're going to be. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. And then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. So the first thing Jesus teaches in this section from the Sermon on the Mount is that prayer isn't about making us look good in the eyes of our fellow church people and fellow Christians. Uh, it's not supposed to be a performance. It's not supposed to be a time when we can seem to be learned about the Scriptures. Prayer is a time, a moment of humility and honesty between you and God. When we perform, we're faking something, and that's what the Pharisees were doing in the street corners. They were standing out there and making lavish, loud prayers so that people would think they were religious. And Jesus said, don't do that. When you perform, you're faking it. God wants us to be authentic. God knows our hearts. God wants to hear the words from us that are true to your hearts, to our hearts, to my heart. Even if those words are frustration, full of anger, full of doubt, full of sadness, disappointment, God can handle unhappy prayers, but God can't stand fake prayers. Then Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for praying in public. Now, does that mean that it was wrong for us to pray out loud here like we do, like Jeanette led us just a little while ago? Well, no, I don't think so. There are lots of examples in Scripture, actually, of 
people who prayed out loud and prayed in public, including Jesus himself. So it doesn't exactly mean that. I think what it means is that check your motive. Are you, are you trying to bring glory to God through what you're saying or to yourself? Again, authenticity is the key. The same applies for wordiness. You'll see that the Lord's Prayer there is very short. God doesn't seem to be impressed with flowery or erudite language. God wants instead honesty, not poetry. He wants to hear from you, however you want to express yourself to him. So let's look at what Jesus had to say now about how to pray. And let me emphasize one thing before we begin, that some of you, if you're like me, uh, have memorized the Lord's Prayer because of citing it, reciting it for years and years in church, and that's just fine. That's nothing wrong with that at all. But the words of the Lord's Prayer themselves are not like magic. They're not some sort of incantation. They're not sacred. They're just a model. Jesus said, pray like this. He didn't say, pray these very words. True prayer is not memorized. It's not something that we have just said by rote. Rather, it comes from the, the lived experiences in our heart. It comes from where we are. Our prayer should be conversational because God is conversational. So, in the Lord's Prayer, there are seven clauses, and they're divided into three parts that I'm calling our greeting and our hopes and our requests. So let's take a look, starting with our greeting. He starts, Our Father in Heaven. Jesus begins, first of all, the very first word with the pronoun, Our. Now, there are dozens of examples in the Gospels where Jesus refers to my Father in heaven and dozens more where he says your Father in heaven. But I think this might be the only place in Scripture where he says our Father. He's including the disciples. He's including his, his audience, the people gathered to listen to him. He's putting everybody on the same level as himself when he says our Father. We may come to God as individuals to pray, and we, we should, but we're also part of a great church, a great collection of people who are all together praying to the same God. So in a sense, prayer is a community activity. It's not really something that we do all by ourselves. It's something that all of us are doing, and Jesus invites us to think of God as our Father, not His, not mine, our Father. And then he uses that word father. Um, actually, in the, in the original text, it's the Aramaic word Abba, which is a, a way of saying father in a familiar way. It might be translated as something like Papa, for instance. So he invites us to speak to God as one we know well, as one we love well, as one we care for and who we, we want to be connected to us. Why is it appropriate to call God Father, do you think? Well, the Bible says that, first of all, He created us. He created us not as cookie cutters, not using some kind of a computer program to stamp out, you know, human beings. He created us with thought and insight as individuals, as special people, each one of us. And He created us and He loved us. He loves us like we are. He loved us, in fact, long before our own fathers, our earthly fathers, ever laid eyes on us. And the New Testament says that in Christ, God has adopted us into his family and named us his heirs. 
given us a place in heaven to be with him forever. So it's appropriate that we call him father because he has done for us fatherly things. But maybe your father wasn't very wonderful. You know, maybe your father wasn't ever there. It can be a hard word for some people. What sort of father is God? What does the scripture say are characteristics of God as our father? First of all, it says in John 3.16 that he loves you unconditionally. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 says he forgives you when you screw up. Matthew chapter 6.32 says that he pays attention to you and he knows your needs. Matthew 6.26 says he provides for you. Matthew 7.11, he gives you good gifts. John 6.32, he gives you food. Luke 11.13, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we have a constant way of being in fellowship with him. He's always at work and carrying out his plans for creation, his plans for our life, according to John 5.17. And chapter 6 of John, he says he gives us eternal life because he wants to have an eternal relationship with us where he can carry on this conversation with us. So therefore, to pray properly to God, we have to start by putting ourselves into sort of a father-child perspective, a father-child attitude, but not a child with a frightening, angry parent, not a child with a frightening, distant parent, not a child with an absent parent who doesn't care, or a distracted parent, a child with a parent who is eager to reach out and to love us. The next three clauses, or whatever, phrases, I'm calling, I'm grouping together, I'm calling them our hopes, because they're all a little unusual, as you'll see. The first one is, may your name be kept holy. And then, may your kingdom come soon. And then, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, first of all, for those of you who are English grammar people, these are all in the passive voice, which means they're not commands. We're not saying, God, do this. But we're sort of expressing our hope, which is why I call it our hopes. We're expressing our desires to God to see his name kept holy, to see his kingdom come soon, to see his will be done. In the traditional way that we say the Lord's Prayer, the very first one, may your name be kept holy, is actually said, hallowed be your name. And that old English word hallowed means to make holy. And so you can express that in a number of ways. May your name be holy. May your name be honored. May your name be uplifted. But what does that really mean? Well, in the Jewish world, um, a person's reputation, good or bad, was associated with their name in the sense that you would say, uh, he has a bad name. We say that today. You have a good name. You have a good reputation. You have a poor name. Your name is not to be trusted. You're, you're not someone with a good reputation. And so this hope can be expressed something like, may you be honored in our world. The second hope, the second phrase, is a desire for God's righteous rule and government to come soon. And it just expresses the reality that we're we're tired of evil. We're impatient. We want to see injustice ended. We want to see sorrow, pain, corruption, hate, all of those things put to an end. We want to see God usher in his kingdom. And the third hope is that the world will recognize God as its true king, as its true creator, as its true father, and that we'll all worship and obey him. 
They're kind of unusual, let's say, prayer requests. And I think they're important for two reasons. One, as we pray them, I think they reorient our thinking. I think they remind us that God is God. And as we say them, I think they encourage us to trust in God's good plans, to rest in the knowledge that he's in control, to believe that he's really present, really working, really listening. I also think that they remind us that as Christians, as God's representatives, as Paul says, he says we're his ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors, that we have a part to play in turning these hopes into reality. So here's another possible way that you might think about these hopes as you pray. Starting with us, may your good name be honored. Starting with us, may you establish your kingdom right here. Starting with us, may the world worship and obey you. I put it that way because if God's name is honored, it's probably going to be because we as Christians live in such a way that God has a good reputation in the world. It's a key part of it. If God's kingdom is being established, it's being established right now, right today, in this beachhead we call the church. His kingdom is not fully here, but it is here among us, you and me. We are his kingdom on earth. And if we have, um, if the world comes to a place of worshiping and obeying God, it seems to me it has to see something in us and in the way we live that leads others to want to do that too, to leads others to think that God is worth obeying, worth worshiping, that there's something to this God thing. So those are our hopes. And now Jesus jumps to the real meat of it. <laughs> That's not really true. But, you know, if you're like me, he jumps to the place next, our requests, that I always go to first, right? Yeah, forget all the flowery stuff. I just want to tell God what I want, right? Um, but Jesus put these very last in his model, our requests, and I think that's probably instructive. It's certainly something I, sh I need to pay attention to. Our requests, the very first one is, give us today the food we need. The most basic physical we need we have is food. And in Jesus' day especially, food was not something to be taken for granted. I mean, you see in the Old Testament, you see in history that whole countries were sometimes wiped out or put at great risk because of drought and starvation during the, the uh, times when Jesus was alive. Um, food also in the Bible is a sign of God's blessing, a, a sign of God's presence. For instance, the wedding feast at Cana. How did Jesus show that God was present in that moment? He gave them wine when they ran out. The feeding of the 5,000 or the 3,000. How did he show God's presence, God's desire to provide for them? He provided fish and bread for everyone in that group. And at the Last Supper, Jesus gave his disciples bread and wine as symbols of God's new covenant of grace. Way, way, way back when God first began talking to Abraham, as he went through some experiences with God, he gave God a name. He called him Jehovah-Jireh, or Yehovah-Yireh, uh, um, Yahweh-Yireh, pardon me, which means God is our provider. God is a provider. God gives good things to you when you need it. Now, nowadays, in our time, we like to think that we provide for ourselves, right? I mean, we work, 
We get a paycheck. Paycheck. I don't even get a paycheck. It gets direct deposited to my bank somehow, right? And and then I go out to the grocery store with my credit card, and my wife goes to the grocery store with, my, with her credit card and buys groceries for us. Um, so where's God in this equation? But we're not really seeing the big picture if we think that way, if we think we provide for ourselves, if we think we are doing it all ourselves. We're not really understanding how fragile life is, how fragile our economy is, how quickly riches can turn to poverty. And I think Jesus wants us to recognize that God is the true source of all good things. The scriptures say that. God is the source of all good things. God makes the world go round. God sustains all life. And so God really is our provider. Notice also how Jesus focuses on the immediate, the right now. He says, give us today the food that we need. Give us the food we need today. Tomorrow isn't mentioned. Did you know, you probably don't know this, Jesus did not have a freezer. Did you know that? He didn't. What did he do? When he was hungry, going to be hungry the next day, couldn't pull a frozen lasagna out. What did any of them do? They were dependent on God literally day by day for his provision for them. We've kind of moved away from that, haven't we? In uh, just a little few verses later in the same passage here, in Matthew chapter 6, 34, this is what Jesus says. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. So Jesus doesn't mention tomorrow because he wants us to live by faith that God will provide for us every single day. Ask for today. Trust God is going to work for tomorrow. The second request is forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. So there's two things at work here, um, two different parts to this. And it gets a little uncomfortable right here, doesn't it? God is beginning to kind of get personal here. He's saying, you've sinned, haven't you? Tell me about it. We've asked, we've praised God, we've asked for various things. The cross of Christ assures us of forgiveness. But God doesn't want us to brush aside our sin and say, oh yeah, I know you've forgiven it, given us. He wants to talk to us about it. He wants us to confess. He wants us to be honest about where we are in our lives. Ask him in your prayer, how have I sinned? Let him reveal it to you and then confess it honestly. What have you done? What have you failed to do? What have you thought? What have you completely missed that God wanted you to pay attention to? And then the second part of that, um, as we have forgiven those who sin against us, forgive us our sins as we have already forgiven those who sin against us. There's an order here. God says, yeah, come to me and confess your sins, but don't forget the fact that there's probably somebody out there that you're holding a grudge against. You need to deal with that. You need to forgive that person, and then you can come to me and talk to me about your relationship with me. Forgiving others is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who have been forgiven must also be people who forgive. Honest prayer requires that we honestly confess our sin and that we look very critically at the relationships we have with others and we keep them straight. 
And the final request says, don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. We should always ask God to protect us from trials and temptations, to strengthen us, to help us withstand, to help us stand up during times of assault, of trials, or to help us to purify our minds and our hearts because we know that they go astray. We should ask God to guard our hearts and to keep us out of trouble. All of us are morally frail, aren't we? We stumble, we fall at times, we do things we wish we hadn't done, say things, do things, think things. All of us are at risk if we don't keep our hearts and minds on Jesus. And so this part of the prayer is saying, God, the reality is I'm human. I am, I'm a sinner saved only by the grace of the Lord Jesus. I constantly disappoint you, fail you. I constantly hurt people around me. Lord, help me not to yield to temptation because there's a lot of it out there and rescue me from the evil one who wants to do me harm. I think Paul expresses this idea beautifully in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 7. He says, For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. And this makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. You and I are fragile clay jars. We're prone to breakage. We're prone to falling off of a shelf and shattering, right? So pray for God's protection. Pray for God's help. I think the Lord's Prayer is the perfect place to start if you want to learn how to pray differently, to pray the way Christ wants us to pray. And I confess that um, I am not a very faithful prayer. I am not standing up here as an expert on prayer by any means. I'm not consistent. I'm not always very honest in my prayers to God. But I want to learn. I want to talk to God in a way that honors Him in the way that He He wants because of the relationship He wants to have with me. I want to know how to listen to God. And I think that takes practice. I hope you do too. I hope you want to learn how to pray. I hope you want to learn how to listen. I hope during this series that you'll spend some time really thinking, what's prayer all about? And what do I need to learn from Jesus about how to pray, how to talk, how to listen to this God who wants to have a relationship with me? Let's end with this challenge from Paul. He wrote this to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 through 18. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are our true Father. And we, we thank you that you have made us your children, that you have welcomed us into your company, that you have placed us beside Jesus Christ and welcomed us to call you Papa, welcomed us to call you our Father, along with Jesus. Thank you that you listen 
that we don't always speak to you. We don't always tell you the things that we ought to be telling you. We don't always take the time to talk to you or we do it quickly, dashing off prayers here and there, not really relating to someone as we do our friends, as we do people who we love deeply. Lord Jesus, teach us how to pray in a way that brings honor to you, in a way that truly leads us into having a relationship with you, because that's what you want. And as we go through this week, we'll have lots of opportunities to pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help each of us during this coming week to be honest, to be authentic, to express to you frustrations if that's where we're at, anger if that's where we're at, or thanks, appreciation, joy, if that's where we're at. You want to hear it all. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for your word. Make us a people who pray. Help us to become a people who pray. Thank you very much, Lord, for hearing us and speak to our hearts so that we can be people who bring joy in the way that we talk to you, in the way that we listen. In Jesus' name, amen.